Star Wars 7x7 episode 3171. Today we're going to re-explore Bo-Katan's complicated history as part of our Mandalorian deep dive. Punch it! Hey Rebel Riser, I'm Alan Voivod and this is Star Wars 7x7, your daily dose of Star Wars joy. And thank you so much for joining me for it. So in interviews leading up to the start of Season 3 of The Mandalorian, Katie Sackhoff talked about Bo-Katan and her journey through Season 3. And one of the things that is animating her course through the season is a very common Star Wars idea, the idea of biological family versus found family. And when it comes to Mandalorians, there's sort of an interesting intermixing between those concepts because of the houses and clans. So yes, you can be you know, born into a particular clan and that clan will be part of a house and may even be the main clan within the house. But there will be these other clans and there will be allegiances and competition and whatnot. And so yeah, sometimes your biological family and your found family are working together and sometimes they are at odds with each other. And that was certainly the case for Bo-Katan, who had a different idea about what Mandalorian society should be like than her sister, the Duchess Satine Kreese, who was part of the new Mandalorian pacifist movement, whereas Bo-Katan was very much more the traditional warrior style of Mandalorian. And those warrior Mandalorians tried to take over and tried to get Count Dooku and the Separatists to help, but of course Dooku messed them over naturally, and the warriors were exiled. But later on, they stumbled across Maul, not Darth Maul anymore, just Maul, and Savage Press, and worked with them to retake Mandalore. But then Maul, silly him, you know, they had already amassed this additional power by uniting a few crime syndicates under this thing called the Shadow Collective. Maul challenged Pre Vizsla, who was Bo-Katan's boss in Death Watch, to a duel and beat him and took over Mandalore. And Bo-Katan was like, nope you're not a Mandalorian, forget that, and so led people away to oppose Maul's rule of Mandalore and eventually tried to get the Republic involved, which eventually they did, which we saw in the Siege of Mandalore arc in Season 7 of The Clone Wars. So she becomes the head of Mandalore until the Republic falls and then she won't go along with what the Empire situation is. So she is forced out of power and that's when Gar Saxon comes into power. Gar Saxon we meet in Star Wars Rebels along with his Imperial Super Commandos and I mentioned them because that looks very much like the helmet that our Mandalorian finds in the minds of Mandalore before he's suddenly bear trapped by that giant mech suit. Then we jump ahead more than a decade to Star Wars Rebels and Sabine Wren giving Bo-Katan the Darksaber, which she then loses at some point to Moff Gideon while the Empire is still in power. And we have the Great Purge with all the fusion bombs being dropped on Mandalore, the Night of a Thousand Tears and so forth. And then we jump ahead about another decade and Bo-Katan is not able to take the Darksaber from Moff Gideon and therefore everybody who had been following her says, well, see you later and takes off. And so now we have a bitter, solitary Bo-Katan that we meet in season three of The Mandalorian. And it's fascinating that this is the version of Bo-Katan we get introducing us and introducing Din Djarin to Mandalorian history and culture. 
At this point, she's become utterly cynical about her own backstory, talking about how when she took the creed, it was a big public display. It was just theater for all their subjects. And she made her dad proud only because she didn't screw anything up. And that was all she had to say about that. Then there's the derision and dismissiveness about the idea of the living waters that, yeah, there's no magic to them and you won't bother thanking me when you see them, right? Because they're just not a big deal. Then there's the sarcasm around you know, getting him there and saying, oh yeah, let me give you the full tour as she stops and reads the plaque about the history of the living waters. But she's not totally gone. She's not unredeemable in that regard. She talks with bitterness about how there used to be such a flourishing, amazing society and how the empire was working not only to destroy it, but also kind of remove it from memory as well. She's also learned from the past. She reflects while she's walking with the Mandalorian to the mines about how the Mandalorian culture was made weaker when they pitted themselves against each other. And that's a very interesting bit of self-reflection, especially when you consider that the whole idea of being Mandalorian as she was raised was to be this warrior class where that sort of thing was welcomed, or even as the Mandalorian himself put it way back in season one, that weapons were a part of his religion. So despite the cynicism and despite the defeatism, there's still room for Bo-Katan to have an epiphany. And even though she told the Mandalorian that Mandalore was poisoned and basically uninhabitable, even though it had been her plan to retake Mandalore, I mean, so it wasn't utterly out of her mind to go back there, and even though she was just about to kill the Mandalorian, maybe, when she told her, you know, her droid attendant, let's get rid of him once and for all before she realized that it was Grogu in the N1, and she was like, what happened to him? Despite that, and possibly even because of the Mandalorian's kind of childlike stubbornness about wanting to go to the mines of Mandalore and Bo-Katan... <laughs> having to take the mom role and be like, all right, fine, I'll take you there. You wouldn't be able to get there on your own anyway, right? There's still something there within Bo-Katan and she gets a revelatory moment when she sees the mythosaur underwater, like that gasp that happens when the bubbles burst from underneath her helmet. The Mandalorian doesn't get that moment. He's been knocked unconscious. That moment was for her. This is the turning point for Bo-Katan. And when you pair it with the fact that the Mandalorian was not giving his who are we were like stars scattered across the galaxy speech. He's not giving that speech to a bunch of other Mandalorians to rally them. Yeah, this really feels like it's a turning point in Bo-Katan's journey to getting back to taking over the throne of Mandalore. Not just because of the blood of a certain lineage, not because of whether she does or doesn't have a sword, but because of who she is as a Mandalorian, plain and simple. And that's what I've got for you on our deep dive episode related to chapter 18 of The Mandalorian, The Minds of Mandalore, and that's going to do it for this episode of the podcast. It just remains for me to say thank you so much for joining me for it, as always, and may the Force be with you wherever in the world you may be. 7x7 is not endorsed or sponsored yet by Lucasfilm Limited, Disney, or 20th Century Fox, and is intended for entertainment and information purposes only. Star Wars, the Star Wars logo, all names and pictures of Star Wars characters, vehicles, and any other Star Wars-related items are registered trademarks and or copyrights of Lucasfilm Limited, other respective trademark and copyright holders. May the Force be with them. All original content is copyright 2021 by Star Wars 7x7. We hope you love it. 
If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio.